0: Brooke is a transport and urban planner specialising in the evaluation and design of sustainable transport systems and their integration into the urban environment. He has over 35 years' experience in federal, state, and local government, consulting, and academia, including positions such as the New South Wales Water Resources Commissioner and Manager of Transport Policy for the City of Sydney. Ed Blakely is a former Washington Insider, an internationally recognized leader in urban development and planning, advisor and author.
1: Gary Glazebrook, we've known one another for about a decade, right? You're a professor at the University of of Technology in Sydney and transportation expert. Uh, What are you doing now? I'm basically retired these days. I still do a bit of
2: lecturing here and there and I'm I've started up a, uh, an attempt to get high-speed rail back on the agenda in Australia um, and linking it, and this might come up later on, linking it to the issue of a decentralisation strategy um, because I think there's a the real possibility of changing the way we've organised ourselves in this particular country here where, as you know, we're highly urbanised in a few capital cities. So I'm working on that. Um, but basically um, I'm retired,
1: which is a good place to be. Boy, that's, um, that's great. And I'm, I hope to join you at some point uh, in that. Um, but right now, Gary, uh, you have been uh, a person with significant insights about cities and how they're organized and what's happening and what might happen to them. How has COVID hit cities? What are some of the major changes? Well, there are a couple of there are a couple of things. So, I think changes within
2: cities um, in terms of lifestyles, travel behaviour, uh, demand for office space, the sort of housing that people want to live in, all that kind of thing. Um, and then I think there are changes between cities or between cities and, and regions in terms mm-hmm. of people's residential uh, choices. But also, you think those
1: choices are permanent or temporary? They just want to get away yeah. from the lockdowns.
2: Yeah, I think. Some of it will be permanent. Um, I was looking at the ABS uh, Bureau of Stats uh, the other day, and I think in the last year to March, there were 46,000 people that moved out of Sydney or moved out of Melbourne to the regions uh, in New South Wales and Victoria. So that's a huge number. Uh, that's kind of a reverse migration flow. We, we've had for decades, we've had people- moving What was the out. number again? Forty-six thousand people. Forty-six thousand—that's a big number. Yeah, it's a big number. Uh, that's in a whole city. Out of, that's out of yeah, out of Sydney and out of Melbourne, uh, which are our two biggest cities, as you know. And and that's the reversal of decades of the reverse migration, where people have been coming to Sydney and Melbourne. Sydney and Melbourne, in particular, have been dominating the whole population growth scenario in Australia. And that's part of this global cities phenomenon we've seen over the last twenty or thirty years. Um, Melbourne, as you know, has been winning the, you know, world's most livable city uh, stakes um, in comparison to many other cities around the world. It's now coming about third on the typical sort of uh, measures that people make. Sydney usually comes in a bit below Melbourne, but still, again, one of the world's most livable cities. So we're sort of lucky like in Australia. We have these great, great cities to live in, or they're considered to be great cities, but. There's an enormous problem of housing affordability. We have some of the least affordable housing in the world, actually, in Australia. Much much less affordable than, say, in the US or in Europe even. Um, So uh, as far as COVID's concerned, I think it's just thrown everything up in the air. And, uh, of course, different countries have had different experiences. In in Australia, we've had very low death rate, um, very low number of people with the virus, but equally we've got the world's... (laughs) where the world's lagged in terms of vaccination at the moment. And we've got in the middle of lockdowns in Sydney and and there's a new one just started in Melbourne, there's one in Brisbane going on as well. So we've got half the country in, in lockdown, whereas in much of the rest of the world where they've actually succeeded in getting vaccination rates up to sort of 60%, 70% of the adult population, we're sitting on about 16% in Australia. So um, the rest of the world is opening up and we're sort of way behind. So there are different things happening around the world in different cities and in different places. Um, but I think one of the things that COVID has done is change the way people look at work um, and the way they look at how they utilize their homes. So I did some research in Australia and found that to much, my surprise really that over half the workforce are either managers uh, or professionals or clerical workers, or people who actually can work online.
1: Half Uh, the workforce for the entire nation?
2: Yep, more than half the workforce.
1: Now Now what accounts for
2: that? Well, we're a tertiary sector economy. We have highly efficient agriculture that employs almost nobody. We have very little manufacturing. Uh, And I like to say in Australia, we do two things. We dig up rocks and we make great uh, coffee. Um, we sit around drinking uh, cafe lattes and flat whites and and uh, drinking, sipping chardonnay. So Australia that sounds is like Marte- Monte Carlo,
1: part. not like a big nation.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, we're not like Germany and Japan. Where we you know we don't have a huge manufacturing sector, and uh, and we're a tertiary, you know, a tertiary sector economy.
1: Uh, now, to some economy. extent. Uh, the lower end of that tertiary sector can be really hurt by this. The guys that make the coffee. Uh, if you're working uh, from I think home, that
2: the guys that make the coffee, they, 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 it's amazing how, yeah, sure, at the moment, cafes are doing, doing it tough, cafes and restaurants. Um, but interestingly, every time the lockdowns end, they do really well down here in the southern highlands. We're only about an hour and a half out of Sydney. Um, we get swamped by people coming down from Sydney whenever they can. Um, out of Sydney and come down here. We have we have more cafes per head of population in the Southern Highlands, I think, than anywhere in the world, just about except Byron Bay. Um, so you know, Australia is known for its coffee, coffee and its cafe sort of culture. Um, used to be pubs in the old days, if we went back thirty or 40 years. Nowadays, everyone just goes to the cafe. So um, you know, when when COVID is not restricting people's uh, socialising. Um, in actual fact, people are having a pretty good time out of of, uh, the lifestyle can be pretty good. In fact, everybody in Australia pretty much has had to stop traveling overseas and because we're such huge international travelers and people spend so much money on flying around the world and going on cruises and things, uh, all of that has stopped for the last 18 months. And as a result of that, um, there's all this money to spend. People have been saving money and spending it on housing. So there are a whole range of changes that have happened um to the economy um to lifestyles even to things like settlement patterns how much of
1: this is going to be permanent is is really the big question tell me um this pattern uh clearly uh other things may push this for example the 40-hour week is dying and the four-day week is probably going to come off the other side of this I would be very surprised if anyone is going to go to work five days a week in the future.
2: Well, that's right. and it, But that doesn't mean that they won't be working. And, and I mean, No, no, the they'll just be working from a different location. They'll be working from a different location. That's right. As far as people who are in the sort of occupations, as I mentioned, over half the labour force in Australia um, can do stuff online, if you like. Um, so uh, for those people, uh, a lot of companies are now saying, look, we really do want you to come back to work, but probably only three days a week, maybe four days a week. Some will be more flexible. You know, companies like Atlassian and so on, as uh, one of our high-tech companies here in Australia, um, have got a policy of saying, well, look, we don't care where you work from. You can be overseas. It's an international company. Um, you can be working from your home. You can come into the office. You can... Work from a cafe do whatever you want um, but if you do come into the office you'll be operating on the same platforms in the same communications infrastructure as if you're working from home so they're not forcing people to come into the office despite the fact they're just actually in the process of going to build one of the world's newest high-tech office blocks right in the heart of sydney so i think a lot of people have decided that they really don't want to go to work five days a week. They don't want to do the five day a week commute. And uh, as long as the companies and the employers agree to that, I think that will produce some big changes in travel patterns in particular.
1: Yeah, I work in a law firm for what is called a full week, uh, but I only go there two days a week. Mm. Exactly. And uh, the firm is about to relocate. We have about 25 people, and then locating space for about 12. There'll be no conference room anymore. Mm -hmm. We'll share a conference room on the same floor with somebody else. Uh, The big library with all the books in it, like you see behind me, is something really of the past, because we have a staff person who sends us electronic library stuff almost daily um i have never since leaving law school looked in a law book what for i couldn't get the most recent case from a law book so why look at one exactly they make nice shelving though
2: (laughs) the the real question is here up until maybe five years ago uh we had richard florida and, and we had the kind of theory that face-to-face communication if you go back 25 30 years ago we had people like bill mitchell with the city of bits writing that the technology for video conferencing and so forth would make cities redundant so there were quite a lot of people writing back in the 1990s or thereabouts when the internet was really you know getting into action that um, Look, cities were a thing of the past. People would go and live in rural, you know, he was thinking in terms of the United States, um, attractive rural areas could be in Colorado, could be in, you know, in California. Why and that you- did happen. And it happened to, to a significant extent, although what actually happened was cities like Denver and, and sort of like City and, and Phoenix and so forth, became very, very fast growing cities. So yes. yes, some people did in fact live in the mountains, you know, in a, in a ski village sort of deal. But um, in actual fact, America was urbanizing or re-urbanizing again. Uh, and, and in fact, the world is, that's what's happened around the world. London didn't die. Uh, Paris didn't die. Tokyo didn't die. Sydney and Melbourne have boomed. Um, so we've had 30 years now of global cities doing extremely well despite all this technology which we've actually had video conferencing for 30 or 40
1: years now. So, so uh, it's less sticky now that, that core isn't as sticky as it used to be. huh?
2: Well that's right so I think that we're now going to enter a new phase you know I think it's taken that long for people to accept it really was COVID forcing people to do video conferencing we've had it all we've had it there. But people used to jump on planes and fly from Sydney to Melbourne or Melbourne to Sydney for for a meeting, you know, 5,000 kilometres, go to to a meeting and fly 1,000 kilometres home again. That that was the sort of way in which business was done in Australia and and it's the way it's been done in America and Europe. Uh, uh, We had all these cheap flights and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was believed that you had to have face-to-face contact uh, to really make things creative, to get the creative city effect. Um, now, I, you know, it, it now is a very interesting question about whether that is actually still true or whether people actually have now gotten used to this concept of Zooming and all the rest of it. And maybe, yes, we will have to have face-to-face contact, but maybe much less frequently. Maybe well, we don't If you're just making uh,
1: transactions, you don't need it frequently. But if you're doing some work that may require creative... Components, two or three of you face to face, I found is far better than online. Well, absolutely,
2: and so the question is, how do how do how does work adapt to all of that? How do people adapt to all of that? How do organisations adapt to it? And what does that mean for our cities, where we live, where we work, etc.? So, so well, think, how
1: do you surmise?
2: I think we will not go back to what we were before the five day a week commute. I think you're right. I think a lot of people will do spend some part of the time working from home. Uh, maybe it's a day a week, maybe it's two days a week, maybe it's three weeks a month, whatever, depending on the type of work you do. Um, so that means that the amount of commuting within cities will probably decline. Mm-hmm. But you know what will happen? I think what? people will then decide, like I, like I know a lot of people have decided down here, that as long as you're close enough to a big city, uh, maybe an hour and a half away, uh, you can get there when you need to, if you need to.
1: And yes, so that decision has been uh, made uh, because as long as you go, you, know, you only go to the opera once a week anyway, at the most. Yeah. Yeah. Or to the big show or the big footy match. You don't have to be there all the time. You don't have to be there all the time.
2: And if you think about it, the trouble of big cities has always been housing costs and congestion. And that's always been, it's always been there and it will always be there. And for people who want to have something of a rural lifestyle or to you know, breathe the fresh air or have a bit more space or have an environment for their kids to grow up in, so long as their kids can then get to you know a good university and so long as they can get good healthcare when they're older, You don't have to be in a capital city or in a major city. You can be in a smaller town or a smaller city or even a village. Um, This is the advantage that a lot of countries in Europe have long had because their settlement pattern is not just dominated by a couple of big cities. There are lots and lots and lots of medium-sized cities all over the place in countries like Germany and so forth. So- What's
1: helped that very much is they have these great train programs in the Netherlands, you can live on one side of the country and have your job on the other. Most of exactly. universities in Paris have their faculty in Nice and all over the place. They don't live in Paris. Exactly, exactly. So, so I think it does. It'll depend
2: on the person and the sort of job they do. And some people are just urban. But I think it depends on the transport.
1: Life. I mean, you can be twenty minutes away if you're in tokyo and mm. 100 kilometers you know yeah that that's yeah. a huge difference
2: well that's it so high-speed rail of course is is a game changer i think for some countries like australia and the us which haven't really had it um, but japan has had it for a long while europe has had it for a long while china's now got it um, we're way behind on that on that score so uh, our settlement patterns in america and australia were big continental-sized countries, um, we've been based our transport for the last 60, 70 years on flying and driving. Uh, we haven't had that intermediate high-speed ground transport mode that they've now had in, for, you know, 30 years or so in Europe and Japan and Korea and so on. So I think there might be some big changes coming in settlement patterns in countries like the US and Australia and Canada. Will it um, be driven by the of-
1: worker or by the firm.
2: Well, I think it'll be a combination. It'll need, it'll need three things. It'll need the individuals, the companies or the employers and governments. Governments will need to provide the infrastructure. Um, I think the property development industry will love it. They will, they will in fact, find ways to make money out of, whether it's new office blocks or new housing or some sort of, sort of changes in the way people have their house. Like, everybody will want to have somewhere where you can work from home. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people will will want the sort of house that you've got enough space to get away from your bedroom. And uh, I spent 15 years working from home in Sydney in the inner suburbs and actually um, had the world's shortest commute. I think it was about one metre from my bed to my desk. <laughs> um, and that's not ideal. You don't really want to work out of your bedroom. You know what I mean? You really want to have at least another spare room somewhere in the house,
1: uh, a comfortable room that you can work from. But haven't we been going in that direction for some time? Because there were those... Uh big game rooms at one point and then we went to the uh the big television room you know the big television screen and people I think have taken those screens down and just put in offices
2: well I think you know Australia's got now the biggest houses in the world I think they're bigger even in the US um and and that's true of some people but we've now got a whole generation of people who can't afford to own their own home and are living in tiny apartments and in yes, fact that's true. we've got a, a sort of a two type of uh, you know a double housing system some people crowded much more crowded than they used to be and other people much less crowded than they used to be
1: well know? those people so, who can't afford houses uh they're usually two job people and moving out of right. the countryside with two jobs and two children is a difficult choice
2: Oh, that's right. And so depending on your stage in the life cycle, your income, and I think your own preferences. I mean, I think there are some people who think that being in the country is an absolute death, you know, nothing ever happens there. It's not an exciting place to be. But for other people, they really don't really want to be in the city, to be honest.
1: Yeah, that's true. But I want to go back to my premise here. Housing prices are high in the city, apartments are small. You can't leave that small apartment and go out in the country and get a larger house because the two-income family requires you to live close.
2: Now, there's a problem, and that's true in the days where everybody used to commute all the time, five days a week. But what I've discovered living out of Sydney now, down here an hour and a half out of Sydney, an awful lot of people here commute to Sydney already two or three days a week. They might stay with friends. Um, they have their house down here. Uh, they might go to university in Wollongong or they might go to university in Sydney. Um, there are a lot of flexible arrangements. I'm, I've been surprised at how pe- how flexibly people's lifestyles
1: are.
0: Hmm. Um,
1: so a person, my, my wife could go to work on Mondays and Tuesdays and I go to work on Wednesdays and Thursdays and the children don't even know us.
2: Yeah, that's that's true.
1: <laughs> I mean, if you had a little pay to tear, we had one in New York, we lived on the island. We had a little apartment in the city because when the evening functions, you couldn't get back. So we had a little apartment about as big as my office here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, I had a cook stove and toilet and so forth and a little kitchenette. Um, and that was enough for the weekend. Yeah. And sometimes I stayed there two or three days because there's a big function going on in the city. When the UN opens, you can't get back in the city.
2: Hmm. Exactly. And and so for peop- some people will have that flexibility. Some people got the income to keep a country estate and an apartment in the city. Um,
1: that's more of the English, it, isn't it? The, the that's London a, that's
2: style. A that's a traditional lifestyle for many of the higher-income people in in London, for example, Um, and they go back on the weekends for their country estate and then they come into the city and and stay in a little apartment. So, look, this has been going on for a long time, but I think what COVID has done is make people realise that actually it is possible to do a lot of work online. A surprising amount of work can be done online. Um, But having said that, I know a lot of people who are really over-Zoom, to be honest.
1: i'm over zoom
2: they spend so many hours a day on the screen they're just sick of it so you know it's going to be interesting to see how it all all pans out
1: but uh for me now i can interview somebody in brazil and i'd never think of that before because zoom is so good Uh, but when you're working online it doesn't seem the same as if you're doing like I'm doing, it's a hobby, but in the media world, this would be work and Mm. I might get sick of it.
2: Yeah, exactly. So the question is, you know, people still crave, you know, physical proximity and contact, I think. Um, I still think that's going to be, that'll come back when, when, as soon as people can get over this COVID thing, we get everybody gets vaccinated or nearly everybody gets vaccinated. so I think the city will come back, I think, but companies will have to make it much more attractive to come into the office. Mm-hmm. We had got to the stage in Sydney, not quite like Tokyo where, you know, people are, and are occupying two square meters of space in the, in the <laughs> office jammed in. But, you know, uh, a lot of these law firms, the partners might have a very big office on the top floor, but the, uh, the solicitors downstairs are <laughs> crammed in like, uh, like rats in a cage, you know, to be honest. Um, we had got to the point where office space was so expensive that these companies were, in fact, jamming people in and pretty awful working conditions in actual fact, a little bit sort of Dickensian, really. Um, I think companies will find that a lot of younger people are not going to tolerate that anymore, that there'll have to be a lot of attractive features about going to the office. There'll have to be gymnasiums. There'll have to be coffee shops. There'll have to be entertainment or you know some other things to get you to go to the office otherwise people say no thanks i'll work from home and if if employers say well if you want to work in this company you'll have to come into the office five days a week i think a lot of people the people with skills will just say well goodbye you know
1: goodbye. i'm going to work for a company that's more flexible as you may know that's happening in the u.s yeah because such a skill shortage but let's get back to the cities that are going to be winners or towns or non-metropolitan places. Uh, Leinberger said something like you. He said, if you're an hour and a half away and have good bones. Now, if you're someplace that came up in the Second World War and is kind of, you know, just low rise, ugly place, you don't make it. No. But if you have kind of a country town, you know, bohemian atmosphere, you make it. Yep. So those little country towns that think they're going to have a big boom, he's saying, they ain't. It's, no. the, it's the, the country town that has amenity already. Maybe you're, you're university not. established there or a seminary or the regional medical centers there. Something's there that you can build exactly. on But if the bones aren't good, it's not
2: gonna happen. No, that's right, because people are then seeking the lifestyle alternative to the city, which is, you know, down this part of the world, we have what, 15 wineries. We have umpteen really good restaurants. Uh, We even have a cinema that's the longest, the oldest continuously operated cinema in Australia down here, Uh, and it shows really good films, you know, sort of like an art art cinema. Mm because you've got in this part of the world, you've actually got a highly educated, a lot of retired people, but retired professionals and highly educated sort of uh, population down here. Also, you've now got, we're close enough to Sydney that we get uh, the visiting specialists, medical specialists. So you get any kind of medical. Uh, and of course, as people get older, that becomes more and more important. Absolutely. So all of these things go into the mix. If you want to keep young people, you've got to have really good educational facilities. You want to have old, keep all the people.
1: You've got to have good medical facilities. Well, um, one of the things that Leinberger was saying, and I said many, many years ago in a book, that these small towns that are within an hour or two of the city should stop spending time trying to land a new business. What they should do is hook up with an educational institution or a research institution and then grow from that. Exactly, uh, because the train is gonna go where those people are. It's not gonna go where the s- steel mine closed, you know, that yeah. trains don't move that quickly. And if yeah. you can capture them, you uh, really make it like Stony Brook and Long Island. By getting the university there, it is now a real hub. Yeah. For other businesses, I think you'll
2: probably see. Yeah, in the in the US, I think you'll see a bit of a resurgence now in the Northeast. I I I believe, I mean, there was a long period, almost a century of declining industry from the in the Northeast, Uh, and more recently the rust belt in the mid in the mid North and so on. Um, Some of those towns have, have come back, like Pittsburgh and so forth. Um, Detroit's doing what it can, but it's a terrible struggle. Um, but there's so places
1: around Detroit are doing damn well.
2: That's right, and and of course, you know, if you can put up with the cold, um, and if you've got something else going for you, as you say, like a really top quality university or whatever, um, some of these places will do well, but not all of them. That's for sure. Yeah. So.
1: Um, so the government here has been doing this decentralization program for many, many years. That's how I got here the first time. The Whitlam administration invited me mm. out, and Tom Uran and those guys yeah. said, we're going to do this, we're going to make these little towns and cities, and Blakely, you go out there and do the economics on And uh, the first thing I discovered was there was no economy. <laughs> the the, yeah. the places depended on the farms around them, and the farms were sending their stuff over them to be yeah. processed or sent away. So there was that's no the real economy. And I begged them to do what I said earlier: put something here that keeps the money, like a yeah. university or a research institute. Stop crowding universities into Sydney and Melbourne. Put well, them into that's, these
2: places. That's exactly right, and. You know, um, that was the last time the word decentralization was used in Australia, in the Whitlam era, so that's 1975. That's right. So um, people gave up on it, and and the overriding philosophy for the last 45 years has been the market has sorted out and there's no point in trying to intervene by government. Well, that's been the philosophy, let's say, in, in countries like the US and Australia, but it's not been the philosophy in Scandinavia, for example. So if you look at the countries that have succeeded in having a settlement policy like Sweden and Finland, you know, they have very deliberately done exactly what you've said. Um, and they've also recognised that you need to have good ground-based transport systems. So little old Finland uh, is building a high-speed rail between Helsinki and uh, Turkey. Uh, and in fact, they have actually had discussions with Estonia over the other side of the Baltic. They're talking about building a tunnel under the Baltic. It would be the world's longest tunnel, It'd be about 100 kilometers long, to put a high-speed rail from from Helsinki, of all places, to uh, uh, to Tallinn in Estonia. Um, Sweden has started to build its high-speed link between Stockholm, Gothenburg, and and uh, down to Copenhagen in Denmark. Um, these are the countries with five, six million. Well, Sweden's ten million, but uh, Finland's only about five or six million people. Um, so they recognize that if they want to get economies of scale in, even in a knowledge-based economy, you have to be able to put together all the various people and specialties that people have these days, special knowledge. They have to be able to actually physically get together periodically in order to get this spark of creativity happening. And for that, you need to have good transport, not just you know, broadband, but you need actual physical transport systems. Well, maybe well. you need them both. You need them both, absolutely. And in fact, the history of communication or the history of transport and communication is interesting that people thought communications would be a substitute for transport. Turns out to be, in fact, the more communications you have, the more transport you you need. Um, They're complements rather than substitutes. Uh, And I think that's what will now emerge out of this COVID thing. So we've now temporarily substituted communications for transport, for physical transport. But as soon as the restrictions are lifted and people can actually travel and go face-to-face, boy, there'll be a a boom, Um, you know, in maybe 18 months, two years' time, if we get enough people vaccinated and if the virus doesn't come back in some more, even more ugly form, um, we will see a boom in travel and communications and conferences and God knows what like we haven't you've never seen before oh people are anxious
1: i'm set i'm setting one up
2: now in venice (laughs) for
1: 2022
2: exactly Um, uh coming back to your decentralization hypothesis you know i totally agree with that one of the things that the government here should be doing and i'm sure nobody is even thinking about it to be honest you know for the last 20 years australia's made a mint out of overseas foreign you know foreign university students from, from China and more recently India and so on, uh, are coming into this country and the big universities, you know, Melbourne, Sydney and, and what have you, UQ, um, have all got into the act and have just expanded their campuses in the heart of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, like nothing on earth. Um, they're now very, very large, got 50,000 students and, and they've made a mozza out of these foreign students. But where was the government saying to them, okay, we'll, we'll let you, have all these foreign students, but we want to put, let's put a new university or or an expanded one into Armidale or Dubbo or or Wagga or, you know, some of the regional cities. Uh, Let's try and get some of these places really known as a sort of an internationally recognised place to go for education. Um, But of course, we didn't do that. So what we ended up with was, you know, umpteen thousand foreign students living right around the university, right in the heart of Sydney, Melbourne, and to a less extent, Brisbane, um, which was terrific, you know, but uh, of course they've all gone home or, you know, they've stopped coming. So um, we haven't got a strategy for utilizing the investment, the massive uh, investment in universities in Australia in the last 20 years. We haven't got a strategy for making use
1: of that other than just to make money out of foreign students. Yeah, you better come up with another strategy. I say in most of my speeches, luck is not a strategy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And that's what we would t- Um We have a strategy in Sydney and in Melbourne to build our high-speed rail on metros through and around the city. We have something like a 70% drop-off in participation on public transportation, even when the... Uh, Things are off when there's no lockdown. People are not crowding onto the bus. Well, it's too hard to
2: say. I mean, there are now looking at the data in the US recently, and, and some cities back to eighty percent of pre-COVID transit usage. Not all, some. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Europe, it's coming back. Um, the long-distance Eurostar trains and so forth—they're coming back as well. In fact, Europe is investing big time in into city uh, rail transport. Um, In Australia, you're right, that at the moment, people aren't moving around. They're being, especially in Sydney and Melbourne, or Sydney at the moment, we're in the middle of lockdown and you're not allowed to move around. So, of course, there's been a dramatic decline in in bus and train usage. Um, And it probably won't go back fully to what it was pre-COVID, you know, Um, not immediately. But the thing about Sydney and Melbourne is they have had 1.5% per annum population growth rates. and only takes 10 years and you've got 15% more people. So it's a good thing we're building all this urban public transport. It'll be, it'll be used in the future. But what we don't have is anything in the way of intercity yes. uh, rail transport. And that's that's a big gap now in Australia that we need to address. So that's,
1: that's what I've been working on for the last- Well, well will this good strategy be not to think about the high speed rail from uh, Brisbane to Sydney, but from Canberra to Sydney. Yeah, we've got to build uh, another one from and Newcastle uh, to the Sydney airport, the new Sydney airport, and sure. routes that yeah. are easy to do. Yeah,
2: that's what the government has said that they're doing. They're, they're, they've been investigating what they call faster rail, not high speed rail, but faster rail. They're talking about 160, 180 kilometer an hour top speeds, which is faster than what we've got. Um, not very much faster, but a bit faster. Um, we probably have to be a bit more ambitious than we have to be looking at at least 250 kilometer an hour speeds to yeah. really be, make a difference. Um, but we don't necessarily have to go all the way to 350 kilometers an hour.
1: Not even, no, but not even I think hour. you have to go to two.
2: I think we probably have, we need to 200 to 250. Now, America's in exactly the same boat. They have underinvested in in intercity rail transport for a long time. They've just recently, the Senate, only a matter of a few days ago, has passed a bill to start spending big on infrastructure, including rail infrastructure in the US. This would be quite dramatic compared with what's been spent for the last few years, but still nothing compared with what China's doing, um, miles behind China. China has now the world's biggest high-speed rail system. They've just, their main rail company, CRRC, have just brought out four new, complete new train platforms, if you like, train systems. One of them is high, their new high-speed train, which will do 400 kilometers an hour. One is a new metro train that'll be used, rolled out across all these Chinese cities. Uh, one's a new regional train. And the fourth one is their maglev, 600 kilometers. maglev. Km. Yeah. So they've now actually got a maglev train that will do 600 kilometers an hour plus now they're talking about you know 750 so um and they want to put that in between shanghai and and beijing which has already got a very very extensively used high-speed rail system only 12 years old it was put in uh, i think 2009 was the first high-speed rail system in in China, uh, they now have 35,000 kilometers of high speed rail. <laughs> it's unbelievable what they're doing. And they've right, it's adding that five
1: they're, or six percent to their GDP. That's right. That's right. And they're and creating at least regions, that two hours.
2: Regions. They're creating regions with 100 million people in each region and, and connecting everybody in that region within one hour by high speed rail. Uh, so it's like you know, one and a half Germany's all connected within an hour, an hour, an hour and a half. And they realize that that's going to give them the economies of scale in, in production, in markets, in knowledge and information transfer. Uh, that, that, you know, so that's why you know, I think Biden recognizes this in, in the States that they're now a long, long way behind and really got to pedal pretty fast to try to catch up to China.
1: So what else do you think is going to happen?
2: Uh, you know, it's hard to say. I think we've had a lot of forecasts in the past that have gone wrong. I remember when I was uh, much, much younger, they were talking about the leisure economy, you know, that people would be working, you know, two hours a day or, you know, two days a week. Um, we didn't do that. We didn't convert all this technology into leisure. We just, in fact, people are working longer hours than they ever did in
1: Australia. Um, Won't AI so- take care of some of that? Sorry? Won't artificial intelligence take care of some of that? Uh,
2: I don't know. I think what all we're getting is a sort of a further splitting between super educated, higher income, you know, switched on internationally connected people, and if you like, the back blocks, the rust belts, mm-hmm. the The people in jobs that are still only paying, you know, $15 an hour in the case. I mean, in America, there's a big push to try to get the minimum wage up to $15 an hour. Um, But a lot of people are earning. I remember when I was in the States recently, uh, a couple of years back, you know, some uh, waiters and waitresses are earning you know, $2.75 an hour plus tips, you know, just crazy. You know, we've got people at the bottom We've got people earning a hundred times as much per hour, you know, in some are your top lawyer, you know, or more. Can't work. You know? Crazy. Can't work. So, so, so the problem with artificial intelligence and all the rest of it is only going to exacerbate those differences in society. So that's the real challenge, you know, is not so much the technology, but how do we create a, a more, you know, equitable society that otherwise it could just all fall apart. I mean, I think we saw that with the Trump you know, experiment, if you like, was really the Rust Belt and what have you just kicking back and saying, well, we're sick of being told what we can do and what we can't do and all the rest of it, and I'm not having any jobs, and not having any prospects, and they want change. And, um, you know, the question is, can capitalism, as it's currently arranged, can it redistribute things? It seems to have lost the knack.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's making it easier for the rich to get richer, even in China. Mm. And, in fact, the billionaires have done very well out of COVID. In, you know, um, China and everywhere else. The guy at the bottom everywhere. in China has not benefited from COVID. No. Quite to the contrary. So
2: the problem seems to be that, you know, if you invest in education and knowledge you become more productive and then people want to invest more in you. They don't want to invest in somebody who's, you know, below a certain threshold, you know, there's no money for the schools. There's no money for the, you know, and nobody's got a chance to get out of that, out of that system. And so they're, they're the sort of things, I think the really governments have got to deal with the the system, the capitalist system won't, won't solve it. Not even the communist system will solve it. Governments, have to intervene if they want society to hang together as a single society. Yeah, And that's a challenge.
1: That's a hard lesson in both of our countries. Yeah, indeed. That um, I thought the scheme we had, uh, JobKeeper and so on were good schemes. The problem Mm -hmm. was they made them too universal. And when they stopped them, of course, the wrong wrong people got hurt. They should have said firms that make fifty million dollars a year don't qualify.
2: Exactly. And yeah. you've got
1: to keep your people or we'll penalize you in the tax system. Yeah. Do just the reverse.
2: So, you know, there is a real that's that's the real challenge, I think, in in you know, the Western democracy. Europe, Europe's not too different. Same sort of problems.
1: Yeah. But who can buy the vote? Yeah. Yeah. And even though everyone votes here, money still counts with advertising and all that other stuff. That's right. And that makes a huge difference. Gary, we're going to talk to some other people and probably come back to you. I've uh, got a lot of voices. Some things are in common. Everyone believes there will be some deconcentration of the city. Mm. And some people believe it will be a set of winners and losers. Almost everyone agrees that some form of new transportation, the old transportation, even revved up or a totally new system, has to be done. Mm-hmm. The New York City transportation system hasn't had any investment for 30 years. Mm. So even a good system with no investment can't survive. No, no. And the other thing is. The internet and all this technology counts and it counts quite a lot. It gives you a lot of freedom, but it also shackles you by keeping you at this machine for Mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 hours. And at the end of the day, you feel totally brain dead. Exactly. Uh, So these are the problems that we hope to keep tackling on my radio station. And with people like you, we won't mean not come to the ultimate conclusion, but we certainly, if we don't talk about, have a chance of getting there. And that's what this is all about. Thank you, Gary. Good to see you. Thanks, Ed. Good to see you.
0: Cheers. Make sure you subscribe to Pacific Conversations wherever you find it to make sure you don't miss our next conversation. And well worth checking out the website, edtalks.com.au. And for weekly U.S. news and current affairs, check Ed and I's other podcast, U.S. of Ed. Special coming next week regarding the twin crises of Hurricane Ida and also 9-11 on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. How those events have reshaped the future of New Orleans and New York.